Welcome to the second episode of the series. Today, Anna Vicens and Ines Montani are with us to discuss. And just when we thought we got rid of Amy. You're hurting my feelings, Marietta. But we can't trust you to be accurate. And we're better at human interaction, I'm sorry. Today, we will be talking about what we promised you last time and deep dive into the technical aspect of how machine learning can help with understanding content better and improve it. In the previous episode, Mathieu Peretti talked about the collaboration between The Guardian and Explosion AI, and he mentioned how The Guardian analyzed the quotes they used in articles before to see whether they had enough diversity of voices. Today, we have the data scientist behind the project who will tell us what they achieved. Hi, Anna. Welcome to the podcast. Can you tell us more? So diversity was one use case, but also you can imagine uh, that something like this might be super useful for investigative journalists. And we also were very interested to build a tool, for example, on, you know, uh, based on this showing how opinions of politicians, for example, change over time. So on the same topic, because you can also uh, think about assigning each quote a topic, for example, right? Um, and, and we can surface different, uh, different quotes, uh, different statements from influencers, politicians on the same topic over time. And it, it's, you know, straight away leads to a very interesting, um, uh, you know, storytelling, if you, <laughs> if you can imagine, right? So you might, you might find some ideas to, to cover the same, the same events, but from a different, uh, from a different perspective. So that's, that was another case, yeah, use case. That's really interesting. I would have never guessed that AI can go over quotes and extract such valuable information, which makes me wonder whether such use of these tools should be mentioned in the articles. We definitely need more transparency in journalism, and the audience deserves that, so they're able to trust the journalists. Well, uh, obviously, I no, I don't think that readers actually uh, go into you know like deep details in terms of how exactly one article or another was produced and what you know what's behind this. And I I I don't think that that's a problem uh, in this particular case. Or you know we. If we talk about how we use artificial intelligence, although I don't like this term very much, but it's it's like a hot topic now. Everyone is talking about ChatGPT or whatever. So we obviously we have to be very transparent. Uh, you know how exactly we we, we use these uh, new technologies, but in this particular case, I just don't think that what the user-facing product in terms of okay, we surface some quotes, right? And we, we, we know that this quote is a real quote because it's not like if you ask ChatGPT, like, um, can, you, can you write me a quote by Boris Johnson uh, 10 years ago uh, about, I don't know, bending bananas or whatever? This, this quote won't be <laughs> uh, a real quote. It will be, you know, something that you have to be very careful if you want to use it uh, in, in any uh, journalistic article. So be, before publishing anything, you know, journalists obviously fact check everything and make sure that the quote is, is correct and is not even kind of taken out of context, for example, you know, things like this. So when you do that, the final product, it's, it's absolutely it's a journalistic product. How we get there? what kind of efficiency measures we, we had in place, 
to get to this point uh, quicker. That's, I, I, you know, I don't, we, we obviously can talk about this, but I don't think that we should be that worried about uh, user-facing products and readers understanding exactly what's going on behind scenes. I, again, I stress that this is different when you build something else. So for example, uh, if you build a machine learning model to even, you know, to recommend articles to different users and recommending articles based on your personal historical consumption on your website, this is different, right? So we have to be very careful how we explain people why exactly they see a different suggestion from, I don't know, my neighbor, <laughs> you know, we can uh, even sit in, in one room, but uh, get different, different recommendations, right? So in this case, we have to be very, very transparent and careful and explain readers what, what exactly uh, going on behind scenes. What you said sounds familiar to what you talked about at the Festival of Journalism organized by Journalism AI last year, which was related to news segmentation, right? I'm not sure whether it was you or Ines who said that these tools can also be used to help newsrooms categorize content correctly. What ways are there to categorize content? Uh, so that that's actually, um, I think that this story comes from from the BBC because when when I worked uh, uh, at the BBC um, at uh, the World Service, um, they came up with a very interesting idea of, of of a different segmentation for news, and the segmentation was you know was made from readers' perspective and not from editor's perspective. And this is, you know, what, what it means actually. So usually when we talk about topics, like, I don't know, uh, sport is probably too broad, but, um, you know, we can think about Brexit, COVID, you know, all this kind of, you know, all, all these different topics, which we have thousands and thousands, you know, readers, when they click on, on an article, they don't think about topic. They, they actually think about what, so why my time is worth spending reading this uh, this article it's not because it, it's sport it's it's something else right so um, the BBC came up with a very interesting segmentation for news which uh, we called uh, news needs segmentation and it came from from a very interesting research uh, piece that we we sent basically diaries to different uh, BBC users around the world and they, we ask them to uh, basically to record how they consume news. And we, it, it wasn't even about BBC, but just news, you know, whatever you do, right? So you listen to podcasts, you watch TV, you know, you, you listen to radio, whatever. And what we were interested in is uh, why actually, so why they do this or that. And when um, our, um, you know, very talented colleagues from the research department looked at and analyzed the results. And they they came up with six segments, and these segments uh, were around like, okay, I'm um, I'm reading this article or I'm watching this video or whatever because you know I want to be up to date or because I I I'm kind of I'm looking for a new perspective, for example. Or we had one uh, very interesting, uh, or for example, this story motivates me. So, you know, this 
so you you can see that it actually comes it's it's not about topics you know sports might might come you know might end in in any of these uh, different segments etc so it gave it gave us a very nice different angle in terms of how we you know how we look at our content and how we align you know what we do and what we produce in the newsroom with basically what what our audience needs right and and that was very interesting so we at some point we obviously you know when when you when you are a data scientist and you look at this you you think okay so can we actually build a model which can which can predict you know which can categorize our content by these user needs and and here it was very interesting because uh, basically my answer is probably not uh, because we tried um and in the end, uh, the my feeling was that the uh, this classification was very subjective, um, and it worked very. I think that it worked beautifully for commissioning editors and and you know some journalists and gave a lot of you know basically you know it started uh, the whole new conversation in the newsroom you know why we are doing this and that you know or or how we can cover the same story but in a different uh, you know way etc it also gave us some understanding where we uh, you know where our gaps are because we definitely could see that uh, people were interested in certain segments, but we didn't produce enough uh, content in, in these segments, etc. Thank you so much, Anna. We loved talking to you. I'll try to be nice here and I'll let Amy introduce our second guest. Oh, thank you, Marietta. Ines Mantani is CEO of Explosion AI, where she works with some of my AI friends. Hi, Ines. Thank you for being with us today. What Anna was just talking about sounds intriguing, but also very complicated, and we would love for you to explain the technical part to our listeners. Did The Guardian use Prodigy only, or did they also use Spacey? And what's the difference between these two Python libraries, which are so helpful when you don't want to write the code from scratch? I think The Guardian, they also used uh, Spacey. So um, Spacey is an open source library for training models, uh, to analyze text and also to analyze text out of the box. So you start by having some text, you can use Spacey, it helps you get started. It's also a framework around any other capabilities you want to build. And it's a Python library that developers can use. And Prodigy is our first commercial product. And it's also a Python library and developer tool, but it also comes with a web app that lets you look at your data and label it. And then at the end of it, you can export that data, you can use it in Spacey to train a model that does something custom to what you want, or you can use it for anything else afterwards. So it's kind of, a, it's a tool for developers who are serious about training their own models and doing natural language processing um, and creating data in an iterative way, because as you know, uh, text changes, the world changes, data changes, what you want to do changes. So it's not a really static process. You always need to Keep developing your data just like you develop your code. What are the main challenges when it comes to working with a machine learning model and something so subjective as a language? Yeah, I mean, this is this is definitely a difficult problem. And I would say we're not really there yet because language is ambiguous. Language is very, very context dependent. Um, there are ways where, that allow you to train systems that are a bit better at having context of the language and the world like for a very long time that was really a problem because you had some examples you trained a model and the model otherwise knew nothing it only knew what you showed it 
and it's kind of like oh raising you know raising a new um, person from birth and they don't know the language they don't know the world so it's like very very difficult um you know i don't i actually hate using the person metaphor because it i don't like sort of putting that into a computer system but it's there is really there is a lot of knowledge that we have that the system otherwise doesn't have and nowadays there are ways where you can basically train and a different represent train representations based on a lot of raw text that you have and kind of build up a sense of how words are used in context that you can then use later on when you try to do something more specific so you can have ways of distinguishing hey in this context that word is usually used in, in similar ways as this other word or this phrase means that and you can definitely do that and if you incorporate that into your system you can get better results but that said like th even things like irony are still hard and and also the world changes very fast how people talk about things changes very fast when we're talking about online like slang changes yeah i feel like even i now get to a point where i don't necessarily understand things that like younger people say on the internet that is all something you need to capture and that's also why this can't be a static process like you need to keep repeating that and keep also checking where do i have mistakes how can we better address this and add more data yeah to get better results at the end and capture the changing world and language is it all going to become even more advanced and can it be used for other purposes as well um in general it's one way of how you can define what you want uh, the machine learning model or your system to predict so um you know before machine learning you could like you know you could define some rules that you could apply to unseen text but now you can basically build show a system examples and as you do that if you keep doing that it can build up a representation internally that lets it guess um similar patterns in things that it hasn't seen before so that's the idea but ultimately if you want some consistent output you usually need to define well what what should that look like here are some examples so these annotated examples could be a text where you mark the spans of text and the words that are a person or a quote or a speaker or something else or it could also be labels applied to the whole text like is this text about sports is this text about politics these are things that actually work pretty well these days because the system can look at the whole text and average over what words are in there and then build up a pretty good model mental model of like um yeah what what the topic might be or which topic is most likely in the end it's always a prediction and a prediction might be wrong even if you train a system that's 90% accurate that still means that every 10th prediction it makes is wrong which is a lot so it also always depends on how you want to use that system later on and what the impacts are also it's not 100% accurate and we still need journalists to double check that's a relief but i was also wondering if any journalistic skills are actually needed when it comes to working with machine learning um i'm i'm not sure i think the 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 work of like training a machine learning model itself that's not usually the problem what's hard is creating the data and thinking about how to structure your problem and that does require knowing a bit about how machine learning works under the hood and what what works and what doesn't and where maybe you might be encoding biases and where you might actually make your model predict something that's problematic and not even realize it like there's a lot of 
things you can do there, but I don't think that's you know, something that journalists can do. In fact, I think actually journalists come in with a lot of skills that tackle the really important part, which is deciding what should the system do, what should go in, what should come out, what do we do with this, are the, how do we manage predictions that are 90% accurate, which is pretty good or actually very good, How do? but how? where do we expose that? Do we expose that internally? How do we make sure we're not just letting that out into the world unfiltered? I think these are all decisions that are extremely important and that I think a journalist already has deep down or is already part of the work you're already doing. And then the work of actually, of the technical part, you know, is kind of separate and that's something that kind of, that comes on top. But if your plan is bad, it's bad and what, what comes out is usually bad. So it, it really starts with like deciding what to do and how to approach that on a data level. In your interview for Journalism AI, you said, we don't want to automate everything, reputation is important when it comes to news. But to what extent do you think that journalists are responsible for sharing the methodology behind the piece with their audience? I think the sort of educational um, or responsibility that I do see in journalism um, as well, that uh, to help people understand how the technology works and what it means and um, also help people um, empower people to ask the right questions when they're faced with like a product or something that's powered by AI. And one of them would, for example, be what is this trained on? I feel like everyone should, should ask this question whenever there's like a new a bot or some system or something that claims, oh, we're like automating things. Um, what's this based on? Because that has like a huge impact or what does it mean? Uh, what do the outputs mean? Where, how is this generated? And I think this can even, you know, this can help mitigate some of the reputational risks. Um, and I think it can also really help show people, um, you know, how to interpret that information. For example, say, hey, here we trained a system on all our archives and it predicted that with a 90% or, or 80% chance, the, here, this is the answer or this thing is about this topic or um, yeah, something similar. And I think that that really helps put these things into context as opposed to stating them as facts. Um, and I think people also, people should always be critical of what the technology can actually do. And often that's not so transparent. Like people think, oh, wow, it can write these sentences or oh, cars can drive automatically, even though, you know, they kind of still can't. Um, then it must be super easy to do something that's actually very, much more complicated and doesn't even have um, a really straightforward answer. So, um, yeah, I think I would love to see more transparency when these systems are actually used and more background. Um, just like how, you know, you cite, you, you know, you, you, you will always cite your sources. Similarly, I think it's important to cite what a machine learning, which machine learning model you use on what it was trained on, even if you can't publish the whole data. Thank you, Ines, for that. It was very insightful and very complicated as well because we are not experts, but it definitely gave us a better perception of how things work behind the scenes. And just finally, do you think AI is threatening journalism? Sure, there is definitely, um, you know, a legitimate question about, oh, filling in templates that doesn't really necessarily need um, a human anymore in a lot of areas. And that is, that is definitely a worry. Like if you're reporting 
um, you know, short blurb about the sports results from yesterday. That is definitely something that um, a machine can do. But in a lot of other ways, what most organizations, um, both in industry, in, in like um, yeah, traditional industry, but also I think in media and journalism often care about more is, is it good, not is it cheaper? Like, yes, there will always be a fraction of like, oh, is it is it cheaper? And that is, um, you know, that, that's valid. But um, I think um, if it's a bit cheaper, but um, kind of okay, usually doesn't cut it <laughs> like you want you, you know you want to do it and also that's not worth spending money on but if it's better that's where it, uh where things get interesting and that's also why you know there are the workflows of humans plus machines will be better than the workflow of just let let the bot write this and um i also think that's why you know we're not going to see uh, big newsrooms replacing uh journalists with la large language models I knew we would be working together in the future, Laura and Marietta. I can't wait to be your partner. Thank you so much, Ines, for talking to us today. Girls, who do we have on the series next time? I'm so excited already. We will be talking to the editor of Radar AI, Joseph Hook, and his colleague Sonia Tutti about how AI is used for reporting local news. Don't forget to subscribe, and we will see you next week. <laughs>